Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I'm speaking with Robert Waldinger. Robert is a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and the director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development at Massachusetts General Hospital. He also has a new book out based on this study called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness, which he wrote along with his co-author Mark Schultz. Robert is also the co-founder of the Lifespan Research Foundation. He received his undergraduate degree from Harvard and also his medical degree from Harvard Medical School, and he's been at Harvard ever since. He's a practicing psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, and he is also a Zen priest, and he teaches meditation in New England and around the world. So today Robert and I speak about the Harvard study, mostly. We discuss the limitations of relying on self-report to assess a person's well-being. We cover Kahneman's remembering and experiencing selves and some of the paradoxes thrown up there. We talk about why it can be hard to figure out what makes us happy, the effects of alcohol, smoking, and exercise, the connection between work and fulfillment, the primacy of relationships, the diminishing importance of wealth, status versus feeling valued, the connection between good relationships and physical health, having kids and marital satisfaction, introversion versus extroversion, mortality and loss, acquiring experiences versus things, the benefits of walking, the problem of taking our primary relationships for granted, quantity versus quality of time, the self and self-states, the guru-disciple relationship, and the possibility of enlightenment. And now I bring you Robert Waltinger. I am here with Robert Waldinger. Bob, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, we have uh, many overlapping interests here. We were just talking offline about uh, having passed one another at at a TED conference. You have uh, famously given one of the most uh, well-watched TED Talks of all time. Uh, That was on a subject that we're going to get into here and and about which you have just published a new book titled The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Scientific Study of Happiness, which I I, I think will have just come out when this podcast drops. Yes. So I I obviously haven't read it yet, but um, we'll talk about the academic work upon which the book is based. So um, first, Welcome, Bob. Thanks for joining me. And please uh, introduce yourself by just giving us your your potted bio. Uh, what, what have you focused on, low these many years as an academic? <laughs> well, I am a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst by clinical training, and my specialty is psychotherapy. So each day I do psychotherapy as part of my work. But then I also do research, and I run this study that I think we're here to talk about, the longest study of adult life that's ever been done. And then in my off hours, I am a Zen priest and teacher. I'm actually a Roshi, Mm -hmm. a fully transmitted Zen teacher. Nice. Well, hence the the many overlapping interests here. When were you born? I was born in 1951. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so you would have been 
I guess you would have been 16 in the summer of love. Did, so did the, the 60s pass you by or did, did they capture you uh, in, the, in the prime of your life? <laughs> I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. And the 60s sort of passed Des Moines by <laughs> in that it was a very quiet, conservative place. Right. I was pretty enthusiastic about the Vietnam War when I was growing up in Des Moines, Iowa. Mm. That all changed when I went to college. <laughs> Interesting. And, and you went to Harvard as an undergraduate? I did. And then you're, and you're, and you're still at Harvard? That's right. right. I've been there my whole adult life. Interesting. So... Let's spend a moment on the Zen piece. I think we're going to want to leave it aside as we get into your your research and then bring it back at the end. But um, just tell me, how, how did you get into Zen and, and or perhaps uh, other forms of meditation? What, what was the, the doorway in for you? I had always been preoccupied by my own mind and, and all the stupid stuff that I worried about that really didn't amount to anything. And and I realized that most other people I knew were also worried about these things, like, was I achieving enough, right? Or was I important enough? All these things that when we think about being dead, you know, 100 years from now and no one remembering us, what difference does all this make? Surely and there's no one at Harvard who's thinking about those things. No, nobody else except me, right? So, <laughs> right. So this idea of, you know, why, why is this preoccupation with mattering? with being so important? Why is it something that so many of us are stuck in? And I was thinking about this as a teenager, because I was a high-achieving teenager. And it wasn't until my 30s when somebody gave me a book about Buddhist philosophy that I thought, oh, this begins to make some sense. And then it wasn't really until my 50s mm. that I wandered into a Zen group. Five minutes walk from my house, where there was a teacher there who was really down to earth and sensible. And I thought, I could learn from this guy. So I started studying with him and sitting with his Zen group about 20 years ago. And the rest is history. What was the first book that connected with you? It was Wherever You Go, There You Are, the John Kabat-Zinn book. Yeah. So if it was John's book, how come you didn't get into mindfulness practice of the yeah. Vipassana sort? Well, I, I tried for a while. There's a Vipassana center in Cambridge, Mass, near where my office was. But I found that the Vipassana tradition doesn't have much contact with teachers. You can listen to teachers give Dharma talks, but you don't meet with them regularly. And I would get lost. I'd get mm. like tired and kind of hopeless about my messy mind. And it wasn't until I started sitting with James Ford, my Zen teacher, and I saw that, that Zen has a tradition of very short interviews, frequently. Mm -hmm. And that was the way that I found that someone could help me realize, oh yeah, my messy mind is normal. And here's how you begin to enter into an ongoing practice of mindfulness and meditation. So that was, that was really the bottom line, which is that for me, a little more frequent contact with a wiser elder mattered a lot. And uh, I'm not familiar with James. Is it, who was his teacher? James Ford's teacher was John Tarrant, who mm. is still living and still teaching out West. Mm -hmm. And again, I haven't spent really any time in the Zen 
tradition? Are you doing primarily koan practice, or are you doing just uh, sitting practice? Zen has two main streams of practice now, at least in the West. That one is the Soto practice, which is just sitting, mm. and so the core of our practice that that I'm involved in is a lot of sitting, but also the Rinzai school, which is a koan practice school. And so I teach koans. I've studied hundreds of koans in my time and find that also a really helpful way into this thing we call waking up. Yeah, well, we have uh, Henry Shookman on the app who's, who um, has been um, very helpful to a lot of people. He's, I don't know if you've ever mm. met Henry, but he's, he runs the uh, Zen Center out in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I have not met him, yeah. but I would like to, actually. Very nice guy. Okay, well, well, as I said, I think we'll bring Zen back in because we're going to talk about the nature of human well-being and perhaps the nature of the self, and we're going to start with your academic work, but I'll be interested to know how your experience in in meditation practice informs your your view of the, the ultimate goal here and just how you conceive of living a good life altogether. But let's start with the the Harvard study of adult development. It, what has that project been? It, it predates you by some considerable number of years. It, uh, tell us the history there and, and how you came to run it. Sure. The Harvard study of adult development is, as far as we know, the longest study of adult life that's ever done. And what's unique about it is it has followed the same people from the time they were teenagers all the way into old age. Most of them have died. A very few are still living. And now we've been studying their children, most of whom are baby boomers. About 2,000 people in all, but started out with two very different groups of young men. The first group was a group of Harvard College undergrads from the classes of 1939 to 1942. Hmm. Were there only men at Harvard at that point? There were only men at Harvard and only white men. And this was a study of normal young adult development. So, of course, if you want to study normal young adult development, you study all white guys from Harvard. It's the most politically incorrect (laughs) sample you could possibly have now. And we're constantly having to explain to NIH why they still want to fund us. But the other study was also started at Harvard, at Harvard Law School by a professor named Sheldon Gluck and his wife, a social worker named Eleanor Gluck. They were interested in juvenile delinquency and why some children from really difficult backgrounds managed to stay on good developmental paths and stay out of trouble. So these were kids who were selected not just from Boston's poorest families, but from families known on average to five social service agencies for problems like domestic violence and severe mental illness and severe physical illness. So these were kids born with many strikes against them. So my predecessor, George Valiant, who was the third director of the study, put both of these studies together and started studying the Harvard men and the inner city men Mm. as kind of contrasting groups. And then when I came on 20 years ago, I brought in the wives of the original men 
and then reached out to the second generation, more than half of whom are women. So now we have, you know, we have women. Uh, what we do not have are people of color, because in Boston in 1938, the city was 97.4% white. Yeah. The waves of migration of people of color didn't happen until after World War II. So what exactly is being studied? What forms of data are you acquiring on these people? And I can imagine it's, it's come in layers over the years as new methodologies have, have come online. So what, what, what do you know about these people? Well, exactly. So we have studied the big domains of life all the way through mental health, physical health, work satisfaction, work promotion, who got fired, relationships of all kinds. So we've studied all of those domains starting in 1938 up to the present. But as you've mentioned, we brought online new methods as, as they came into being. So for example, we started drawing blood for DNA and for mRNA when that wasn't even conceived of in 1938 when the study was begun. We've scanned the brains of many of our participants, something that people would have thought was pure fantasy in 1938. So what we've done is become a kind of history of scientific methods mm. of studying the human condition. So the, the focus of the study is well-being specifically, or, or have you just pulled that out as a, a variable of interest? What, what, is, what is the actual, you know, from the NIH's point of view, what, is the, what does adult development mean? Right. Well, it is well-being in the broad sense, right? So not happiness. Happiness is a, you know, is a momentary thing, and we can talk about more about that if you're interested. But really, when we think about well-being, when we think about human thriving, that encompasses our bodies, our minds, our social connections, all of that. And that is what the study was designed for way back in 1938. Mm. That's not a new selection process on, on my part. That's pretty interesting, actually. I, I wouldn't have thought that, I don't know why, I would have been skeptical about that framing being or historically likely at that period, but it's, it's just 1938 does not seem like the year or even decade where, where I would imagine an academic department would have decided, okay, we're, we're going to think about human flourishing, eudaimonia, right. well-being. Uh, you know, we're on the cusp of World War II. The, the Great Depression is not even a distant memory. Right. You would think we have more practical problems to worry about. So it's, it's interesting that that was what was uh, birthed in that year. Well, it was radical for its time. And in fact, there's a, there's a famous quote of the earliest directors who said, there's been so much time and energy spent on what goes wrong in human development. We want to study what goes right. And, and you're, you're absolutely correct that this was almost unheard of at that time, to devote time, energy, money to that. What's an interesting sidelight is that the Harvard study was funded by W.T. Grant, the department store magnate, and he was interested in funding a study to determine 
which young men would make really good department store managers. So that's why he was interested mm -hmm. in a study of what he thought were the best and the brightest. But the physicians who founded the study were really interested in this whole concept of human flourishing. So um, how much of the data is correlated in the end with self-report on the part of your, your subjects. So you, you've got all of this data on people. Uh, increasingly, you have modern data like their genotypes and the results of neuroimaging experiments. But the cash value, one imagines the cash value of much of this is in the self-report of the subjects who are telling you how good their lives are or aren't. I'm sure you, you also do observational work to form your own judgments about just what, you, what their life outcomes really are in terms of their level of flourishing. I mean, there's some, I guess, objective measures like wealth and health and the size of their social networks, and, and we, can, we can get into all of that. But how much at the end of the day is it a matter of simply asking people questions and having them tell you how happy they are, or how fulfilled they are, how much meaning they find in their lives. A great deal of our data is, is just that. Mm. It's self-report. But as I think I've said, and I think you know, we've brought in other views, other lenses through which to look at each person. So we began to ask spouses to fill out questionnaires about their partner. We begin, We had a children's questionnaire. Fill out a questionnaire about your dad, right? And then when I came on, we began to videotape them. So we would videotape couples talking mm. to each other. These, these were now in their late 70s, early 80s. We asked them to talk to each other about their greatest fear. We videotaped them. We systematically coded those videotapes, not just for verbal content, but for emotion expression and for physical behavioral signals, we began to then bring them into our lab and stress them out. We would deliberately put them into fight or flight mode with a stressor and then watch how quickly they calmed down. So what we would do is bring in other forms of observation mm. to supplement our bedrock, which was, as you say, self-report. Well, we should probably talk about some of the the limitations of self-report too. I mean, this is a, a concept that will be familiar to my audience. I've spoken to Danny Kahneman before and, and spoken about his distinction between the remember the remembering and, and experiencing selves, both with him and, and with others uh, on this podcast. So I don't know if you have thoughts about that you want to bring in, uh, but I, I guess I before we go there, I'm just thinking about the the math and the uh, the ravages of time here. So if, if if the study started in 38, we're talking about people, the, the, the first cohort were people who were born around 1920? Exactly. And so and the inner city group were born on average nine years later, 1929. Okay. So w what percentage of the study participants are, are still alive, uh, but, you know, apart from the people you've enrolled subsequently like they're their children. There were 268 original Harvard College men, and less than 10 are still alive. Mm. And there were 456 inner city men, 
and fewer than 40 are still alive. Right. And, right. and they would all be in their late 90s, early 100s. Yeah. Okay, well, before we talk about what we've learned, what are your thoughts about the limitations of just asking people about their lives and the kind of data you can get and, and just the, the kind of witnesses people tend to be with respect to what it's like to be them over the course sure, of time? Sure. Well, you're, you know, you're right that, of course, there are tremendous limitations in what people tell us. First of all, in what they can tell us, because we are blind to so much about ourselves, but also what they're willing to tell us, even though we assure them of confidentiality. And many people have told us things they've never told anyone else. We all tend to present ourselves in certain lights and avoid presenting ourselves in other ways. And so all of that has to be taken into account. Now, that said, one of the ways we can use self-report is to look for things that are not explicit and conscious. So for example, tone of voice. Now, we can look for word choice. Natural language processing is now a way of using AI to look at the ways that people speak and infer from that certain things about their mental state. So in addition, we did interviews to understand security of attachment. And that does something that, that Mary Main, the founder of this interview called, we, we surprise the unconscious. We get people to tell us things that they don't know they're telling us. So there are ways to use self-report beyond the literal surface data that it gives us. That said, we do have to supplement with all these other methods that we've started to talk about. What's an example of something that might reveal security of attachment that would be unconscious that might come up in an interview? Sure. So the adult attachment interview has a very particular structure where it starts out, you're, you're talking about your romantic partner. And it says, the, the interviewer asks, give me five words to describe your relationship. And then someone will list the five words. And they might be, you know, loving, challenging, unhappy, it could be anything. And then the interviewer asks, give me two examples that illustrate each of these words. So give me two examples that illustrate how the relationship is loving. What we find is that people who are insecurely attached will very commonly have what we call incoherent responses. And what that means is that in response, giving an example of what, what's loving about the relationship, they will give you an incidence with their partner that wasn't at all loving, hmm. that doesn't sound loving to the observer. And that this is not something usually that the speaker is aware of. And that is one of the hallmarks of an insecurely attached person's interview. Hmm. That's interesting. So how much of a time commitment is it for all of these subjects, or has it been? I mean, so in any given year, I mean, now we're talking about some very old people, those who are still alive, but I mean, just in any, you know, roll the clock back 30, 40 years, what kind of time commitment was it in any given year for people to just give you their responses? 
most years it was just a questionnaire. And actually it was every two years. Mm. Okay. The questionnaire was often 20 pages long with some open-ended questions where you'd be asked to write a sentence or two in longhand as a response and some checklists and some rating scales. So usually those questionnaires would take an hour, 90 minutes to complete. Then about every 10 years, someone from the study would go sit in their living room and interview them for four hours. Mm -hmm. In addition, we would ask people to send us their medical records or give permission for their doctors to send us medical records. So we brought in data from their visits to hospitals and to healthcare providers. And then finally, we've had lab visits. We've had home visits, as I say, where we record them talking to each other. So I would say that most years, it's been, you know, an hour to 90 minutes of their time. But then some, some years, maybe every five to 10 years, it's a half day or even a full day of time. This reminds me of those Michael Apted documentaries, which you no doubt have seen, 7-Up oh, and 14-Up yeah. and 21-Up. Yeah. It's just really a fascinating document to take snapshots at, uh, of people's lives in this way. Well, that's, you know, and one of the things that happens when you go to our, if you go to our files, you can literally sit down with one family's file and it's enormously thick and you can start leafing through the pages and you are walking through someone's life and then their spouse and then their children. And it's really quite an amazing experience to do this. So um, back to Kahneman for a moment. The, so this, um, this disjunction between the remembering and experiencing self that he uh, believes he's found, and, and as far as I know, unless his thinking has changed on this, he, I, I think he believes it's, it's sort of conceptually insurmountable, which is to say that there's no way of really integrating the, uh, the, these discordant streams of data so as to produce a picture of human well-being that is truly coherent. And so to remind people of what's happening here, if you, when you ask people how good their lives are, what you're bringing online is the, what he calls the remembering self who, who's going to give you a story, a, a global appraisal of how good life is. And um, there you'll get one story. But if you prod the person at random intervals throughout their day, with a you know kind of an experiencing sampling technique where you just you give them a, a phone app which asks them to rate how happy they are you know it, when whenever they get pinged and let's say you did that twenty times a day for someone over the course of a year you find that their stories about how good their lives are don't really mesh very well or coherently with the actual moment-to-moment -moment character of their lives as they rate it on a spectrum of, you know, one to ten with respect to their, their feelings of well-being. And there are many reasons for this. I mean, we have, we have various cognitive biases of the, of the sort that Kahneman did much to conceptualize for us. And, you know, there are things like the, like a, like recency effects or the, you know, like the, what was called the peak end rule where in, in any experience, What's going to be most salient for someone when they're remembering it is the the peak right. of the experience in terms of its intensity and how it ended, right? So you can, if you imagine you're going on a vacation and um, you know it was a wonderful vacation, you, you if we were sampling your experience minute by minute, we would find a very high state of pleasure, 
But there was one really bad or embarrassing or awkward or awful thing that happened that you'll never forget. And there was this you know, you know, weird glitch when you were leaving the hotel where they overcharged you for something and they wouldn't back down and you were, you just, you, you'll never go to that hotel again. Right. So like this, it's so like 4% of your experience was bad, but it was this crucial 4% of, you know, this peak moment on the trip and the last moments of the trip. And so when you were, when you tell yourself a story or tell anyone else a story about what that trip was like, you may have a very negative story to tell and it will seem like an irrationally negative story given what your moment to moment experience was actually like. But the problem is, it's the remembering self, this, this more global reappraising self, that is the decider for all future plans, right? So, that, so that there's really no one else to talk to apart from using one of these fairly um, ephemeral experience sampling techniques. So when you talk to this person when, or when this person has to then plan their next vacation, they're simply going to remember that it was a lousy trip because that bad thing happened and that, ho- that hotel was unethical and they're never going to that place again. And yet they're actually, in truth, somewhat delusional about what it was actually like to be them minute by minute over the course. If you could just sum the area under the curve of their moment-to-moment experience, that would, it would be a story of, of very high well-being or high pleasure. And you know, Danny's lesson that he draws from this, which I've actually never agreed with, is um, that you really can't integrate these two selves and that there's just no there there as far as coming up with a, a truly coherent picture of human well-being. Um, I don't know if you have a, have a take on, on that, Bob. Well, I think that that may explain in part why we are bad at knowing what makes us happy. Mm. That, you know, what you're, what you're saying, that, that there are these two very disparate sets of conclusions, right? Or experiences. There's, a, there's ongoing experience, uh, which we really, really can't bring to bear on our assessments of our lives or planning for the future. And then there's the story, the narrative that we create looking back. And so we do know from a series of experiments that we are bad at anticipating what's going to make us more happy and what's going to make us less happy. So we do end up chasing a lot of chimeras. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In brief, I've I've spoken about this before, but briefly, where I I think I disagree with Danny here is that you really only have one life, right? And and so there really is just the the, the life that's being doled out to you moment by moment. And some of those moments are moments in which you tell yourself a story or asked to tell someone else a story that has more global characteristics. And the consequences of having good stories to tell also are doled out to you in other moments. I mean, it, it matters what kind of story you have to tell about yourself and the kinds of thoughts you think in, at four in the morning when you wake up and are brooding about your life. And right. you can become a better and better observer of, of what it's like to be you. You can become a better and better curator of the kinds of thoughts you think you can become a better and better reframer of the kinds of stories you're apt to tell. And all of this matters. Ultimately, this is where things like meditation come into the picture. But ultimately, it is all just the mind and its character moment to moment. And there are just these, these different aspects to it. 
And I, I think we can be more or less corrigible or incorrigible witnesses to what it's like to be us. And we can be frankly wrong about what it's like to be, you know, what it was like to be us over the course of any period of time. So, you know, you can think you had a great vacation because you're remembering a few salient moments, but you can actually be wrong about that. You, 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 you're you unaware of how much stress you were yeah. under and you, yeah. and, at what, and how awful you were to be with. And, you're, and, and this is why it's often good to ask the spouse, because the spouse can tell you how insufferable you've been over the course of any period of time. And so, you know, there's, <laughs> yes. there, is, there is a ground truth there to be gotten to, and it's just, you know, we can, get, we can be better or worse at that project. Well, you know, the other thing I would add, Sam, is this, the element of not knowing. So we tell ourselves stories in retrospect, looking back on our experience, but we also tell ourselves stories in the moment. Yeah. And one of the things that meditation does is it shows us that the moment I frame my experience, I have changed it, I have limited it, I have filtered it, right? And so in Zen, we talk a lot about just this, and it's an experience that can't be named, that can't be put into words. And the moment we try to put it into words, we have altered it and limited it. So a lot of what Zen practice emphasizes is this idea of the limitations of what we can ever know, mm. not only about the past, but about the present moment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I hope we'll get to some of that more paradoxical terrain. But before we do, what have we learned based on the Harvard study? If we're going to just track through the, the lessons one could, could draw from all of these decades of of studying these guys and their and their families. What do we know at this point? Yeah. Well, we've learned two big things. One is no surprise. It's that taking care of your health really matters. You know, exercise, eating well, getting good health care, that those things, and not, not abusing alcohol and drugs, all of those things matter hugely for longevity as well as mental and ongoing physical health as we age. Not a surprise. The surprise for us was when we began to find that one of the very strongest predictors of aging well, of being happy and healthy and living longer was the quality of our relationships with other people. That both our social connectedness and the warmth of our relationships are hugely impactful for keeping us healthy. That was a surprise. And, mm. and in part, we didn't believe our own data when it began to emerge until other studies began to point in exactly the same direction. Okay, so let's, let's unpack each category here because there's health, there's relationships. I'm sure there's something to say about work and career and wealth and oh, yeah. perhaps other categories. But So let's start with health. Maybe let's start with the, the substance abuse piece there. Uh, when you say don't abuse alcohol or drugs, is the finding that that zero is best, or is there have you actually found that there's that you know some alcohol use is is preferable to zero, or I mean, what what what's actionable based on your data? We didn't study amounts of alcohol. Okay. What we really studied primarily was whether you get into trouble with alcohol. And that really means, does it impair your 
relationships? Does it impair your functioning in your life? Does it impair your work functioning? And if it impairs those, then you're in trouble. Then you've got an alcohol problem. Mm. And what we found was that, for example, among the marriages that split up, at least half of those marriages involved alcoholism in one or both partners. Mm. So alcohol is a huge driver of relationship instability. Yeah. So uh, that's obviously not a surprise, but um, do you know offhand what percentage of the group were teetotalers and what percentage wound up to have some kind of alcohol use disorder or alcoholism? I mean, and, and, how, and how was that, any of that defined? Yeah. I don't know the teetotaler percentage, but the alcoholism percentage was somewhere between 10 and 20%. And as we know, about 10% of the adult population is alcoholic at any given time. Mm. So it was, it was fairly comparable. And as you know, in the World War II generation, alcohol was the drug of choice. Yeah. Now there are many more options, <laughs> but, but alcohol was the primary drug of abuse then. What, what about smoking? Was smoke, yep. smoking, smoking just a clear, clearly bad in, in any amount? Clearly bad. Clearly bad. Really takes years off your life. We were able to analyze those data in our study and find that like everybody, every other study ever done, smoking takes years off your life. Mm. What about other lifestyle choices like exercise and type of exercise? Did you parse things with respect to you know, resistance training versus you know, cardio? Or is it, how, how did you assess <laughs> someone's level of, of fitness? We, we didn't parse things in that way by type of exercise. We simply tracked whether they exercised regularly. Mm -hmm. and, uh, not even so much how, mu you know, how much they did, certainly not how many minutes of exercise they did. But we did find that the people who exercised regularly, meaning more than once a week, were significantly healthier as they got older and they lived longer. And that's consistent with you know, so many studies now, thousands of studies that have been done. Was there any way to differentiate the people who had basically sedentary lives and they may be adding an hour of exercise to it on any given day versus people who had lives that were not at all sedentary? Is that, was that a variable that you guys tracked? No, we, uh, we did not track that. Hmm. There, I'm pretty sure there are decent studies now that have done that, but yeah. ours wasn't one of them. Okay, so what about, well, I guess we'll get to relationships last. Let's just talk about the other categories. And I'm, I don't know this from looking at the study, so perhaps you can tell me what categories I, I should be asking you about, but I'm thinking of work and career. What do we know about how people were spending their time professionally? And, and I guess... You know, how any of that links up to a sense of, of meaning and purpose for people. I mean, they're, they're, they're obviously, there are people, there's, there's a continuum here. There are people who work simply to have money so that they can do something they would rather do after work or on the weekends or during a vacation. And then there are people who have managed to find work that is intrinsically meaningful and, and even something they would do, even if they didn't have to work, right? So how did you, what do you know about the, the subjects with respect to the kind of fulfillment 
they might have found in work, and how does that relate to fulfillment in general? Well, we studied fulfillment. We studied work satisfaction. And what we got were sort of expressions of satisfaction that had to do with people, where often there was a lot of satisfaction in being a good coworker, being a good mentor, being a good boss, right? And then there were people who did work that they loved. You know, uh, mm. Ben Bradley, longtime editor of the Washington Post, loved his work and talked about that. So there was loving your work and loving your coworkers and loving what you did with relationships at the workplace. Some people had both. Some people had primarily one more than the other. But you need some of those to have some modicum of satisfaction in your work, at least as far as our data show. And you asked, there was another part to your question. You know, I'm just wondering about the, I mean, it's, it's such a complicated topic when you, when you look at all of, all that it encompasses because work is, uh, is so tied up with, again, the stories we tell ourselves and tell others about how life is going. And, and it's, as you just illustrated, it's tied up with, you know, healthy relationships or otherwise, or, or lack of relationships. I mean, there, there's solitary work and there's work that is by definition solitary and yet can be profoundly meaningful for people. I and mean, if you, if, you know, I'm sure there was at least a novelist or two among your, your subjects, right? So you just, what does it take to be a professional novelist? Well, you, you basically spend your days alone in a room, uh, writing if you're going right. to, if you're going to succeed at that. So, yeah, I mean, what what more is there to say about work and how it relates to the quality of a person's life? And I guess it also this is also bound up with the the variable of wealth and reputation, status, right? So the fame. I'm sure there were some famous people. You just mentioned Ben Bradley. Mm-hmm. So there, there. What give give me the whole nexus of work, wealth, status, fame, life satisfaction in anything that is kind of public-facing for people. Sure, sure. So one of the things that was clear was that wealth did not predict or correlate to uh, happiness, right? And that makes a lot of sense. I mean, we know that from other studies, that once you get your basic material needs met, and you know, there's this famous study of kind of $75,000 a year Mm -hmm. annual household income, that once you get above that, and obviously it varies, by region of the country, but that once your basic material needs are met, as your income goes up, your happiness doesn't go up much at all. Except again, this was another discordance between the the remembering and experiencing selves. So this this is you're referencing this paper by um, Angus Deaton and Danny Kahneman, and yeah, it was after seventy five thousand dollars at the time. I'm sure that has been adjusted for inflation to something like 90,000 now the experiencing moment to moment sense of well-being doesn't change it it kind of it plateaus there but the global talkative how meaningful is your life remembered self tells a better and better story as wealth increases and that doesn't really plateau um, actually, those data, there was a paper by Matt Killingsworth that reanalyzed those data and said, no, it actually, your happiness keeps going up. 
but those that those analyses actually were probably flawed. There's dispute about that, but mm. I don't think that's the case. That the story gets better and better as your wealth goes up. There's also, you know, Angus Deaton's work on comparing, yeah. right? That we know that there's a lot to do with comparing. And the more we compare ourselves to others, the less happy we are. And certainly, if you know, if you're making 75,000 and everybody in your neighborhood is making 150, you're feeling bad about the comparison. Yep. But that's different from whether your well-being, your happiness goes up as you make more money. And the data suggests that it doesn't. And now there are also stories that we've asked people, we've asked people to look back on their lives and here we're getting to Kahneman's, you know, reconstructed uh, self and reconstructed memory. And when we ask people, as you look back on your life, what are you proudest of? It was never wealth. It was never mm. fame. It was always something to do with people. Uh, but these were people in their 70s and 80s looking back. So yeah. we have to take that with the many grains of salt. But still, they all talked about, you know, I raised good kids. I was a good mentor. Uh, I was a good spouse. It was all about people. It was not about wealth or achievement, or f certainly not about fame. It's interesting. There's been a few books on status written recently that have reminded us of just how much of human energy is purposed toward acquiring status and maintaining it. And mm. I mean, it's just as you begin to look through that lens, it's really, it's quite amazing. It, it, it almost captures everything we're about. And, you know, perversely, even our efforts to live wise, examined lives get subsumed by a search for status in strange ways, at least part of the time. You can uh, see all of these great philanthropists who are uh, inordinately focused on getting their names on the sides of buildings, etc. But um, it is interesting that it, I mean the, the punchline that you're drawing here is that status really isn't the cash value of, of well-being in the end. Although if we're made, if we're in a, in a situation where we're comparing ourselves to others unfavorably, and if that's what's salient for us, that really is, I mean, that is the, you know, that, that is status by another name or, you know, a failure to achieve status by another name. And so much of what we mean by status can be less uh, crassly described as, you know, a meaningful integration within a community, right? I mean, having a community that values you is what many people mean by status. Having people who actually but that's want, different, but yeah. but that's different. Feeling okay. valued is different from comparison. And when you talk about status, I think a lot of what you're referring to is comparison. I want to be better than. Mm. I feel less than, which is different from feeling valued by other people. Yeah. For for example, for your contribution to a community effort, right? That's different. And so you know the. The famous Zen quote, one of the Zen teachers said, uh, I aspire to be a true person of no rank. Mm. So, so, how do you, so what's your picture of, well, let's, let's bring in the, the final pieces here. So I, I don't know what else is on the menu apart from relationships, which we haven't talked about yet. What, what other categories of personhood should we uh, 
think about here? Well, it is this, this personhood that we're talking about is in, you know, what we call in Zen, the small self. It's the, the Bob, you know, who, to use David Foster Wallace's phrase, the Bob who is trapped in his skull-sized kingdom, right? Mm. And that one of the things we find is that the most satisfied people with their lives are people who invest in things beyond the self and who really care about having things live in the world beyond them, not beyond as in immortal, but having things, fostering things in the world that are not about I, me, and mine, or even just my family. Does scale matter here? I mean, so we're, we're talking about, let's say, knowing that you're valued, right? Knowing that, that what you do matters to others. Does it matter if that is just an immediate circle of friends and coworkers? Does all of that become more rewarding if it's a, a much larger, a larger audience or a, a larger subset of humanity that actually knows what you're doing? You've just said that fame is irrelevant. So does scale matter at all there? Well, give me, give me I, first of all, I can't say precisely the answer to that question, but let me give you the example of the happiest man in our study, in our first generation group. He was a man who was a high school history teacher. And initially, some of my predecessors thought he was the most boring man in the study. <laughs> and everybody came to understand mm. that he was the happiest, loved his work, had really good colleagues, really enjoyed his students, had kids who he adored a happy marriage and grandchildren who he spent a lot of time with as he got older. Mm. Huge, broad, you know, did he have a following? Did he have, you know, a million viewers or listeners? No. <laughs> he was a guy, you know, who was quite content with his life and much loved, but by a relatively small number of people. Do, do we have a sample of this man's blood? Uh, you know, I have to go back and look. I'm mm. not sure we... I bet we did get his blood. I bet we did. I think we did our home visit when he and his wife were both still living. They both passed away now. Mm. You know, I haven't followed this literature of late, but um, perhaps you have. Do, do we know much about the genetics of... A happiness set point at this point. Well, there's a there's an estimate that's often quoted. It's by a psychologist named Sonia Lubomirsky, mm -hmm. and she estimates, with some data, that about fifty percent of our set point of our temperament is genetically determined, and that about ten percent of our happiness is based on life circumstance at any given time. And about 40% is within our control. Right. Those ratios are not uh, surprising. I mean, basically all of psychology gives you something like a 50% genetic story and a 50% environment. Yeah. So, I mean, it moves around a little bit, but it's uh, rarely far from that. So, okay, so let's talk about relationships and what advice we might extract from uh, this finding. Uh, first of all, why, why was it surprising? I mean, I, I guess I think I'm, I'm surprised that anyone was surprised that the quality of a person's relationships would be dispositive as to the you know, the quality of their 
their life. I mean, the difference between a, a happy marriage and an unhappy one seems pretty stark, and I guess to be compared as well to being alone and lonely as a result. As we come back to the topic of Zen and the contemplative life generally, we might wonder whether being alone in the end is, is a problem for the, for the requisite sort of mind. But normally, I mean, we are, we are social primates, and most people most of the time find it fairly intolerable to be alone for too long with their thoughts. So why, why was it surprising that being with people you love and who love you is much, much better than, than anything else that's uh, on offer? The surprise was not that we're happier when we're with other people who care about us and we care about. That wasn't the surprise. Mm. The surprise was that you're less likely to get coronary artery disease, Right. that you're less likely to get type 2 diabetes or arthritis, right? How does that work, right? So that's what, that was the surprise. It's not a matter How of having it? a loving spouse who's nagging you to stop eating ice cream and pie? Nope, nope. We don't think so. We mm. think it's more than that. Do you want to know something about that? Yeah, please. Okay. We think it has to do with relationships, good positive relationships as emotion regulators. And by that, I mean that, you know, we are faced with stressors every day, most days. That's just the way life is. And, you know, when, when we meet a stressor, the body goes into a kind of fight or flight mode. It revs up, you know, heart rate increases, circulating stress hormones increase. And the body is meant to go back to a baseline equilibrium when the stressor is removed. Now, what happens if there's nobody around to help you with that stress? So, for example, you know, I have something stressful happen during my day and I find myself ruminating about it and I'm churning about it. I go home and my wife's a pretty good listener <laughs> and I can literally feel my body calm down as I'm telling her and she's empathizing. And it doesn't have to be somebody at home, it could be somebody you call. But what if you don't have anybody? What we think happens is that, that isolation, loneliness are stre chronic stressors because we don't have those positive emotion regulators in our lives to help us come back to equilibrium, that we stay in a kind of low level chronic fight or flight mode if we don't have anybody in our lives hmm. to help us with that. Hmm. So, so what is, so take um, the various pieces here. So there's the question about whether to get married or stay married. There's the question of whether to have kids. There's the question of whether to maintain a circle of friends. And if so, how many? And then there's the question of, of what sort of career one has and, and what kinds of social relationships or, or lack of relationships are, are spawned as a result of what it takes to do that career. And so people fall uh, on many places on this map. And so they're the people who are married and have a bunch of kids and then grandkids and they've got lots of friends and they, they throw parties and they go to parties and they, they vacation with friends and they've got careers that put them in contact with hundreds of people. And so that, you know, they're, they are maxed out on every dimension of, of sociality. And then there are the people who have just some of that, and then the people who have none of that. What would you, I mean, so, so if, maybe, maybe this could be put in the form of life advice 
to a 20-year-old, right? I mean, so, uh, you know, I'm sure you have different life advice at each decade along the way based on this study, and that could be interesting to hear. But so if, if there's a 20-year-old who's in a, in a position of designing his or her life, and they are free to make any choice that it seems auspicious, what would you say is most auspicious? I mean, is, is, is it most auspicious to kind of max out all of those social options, or are there equally auspicious <laughs> paths that leave one yeah. with a solitary career but a great spouse and but no kids? You know, I mean, so what, what is it? Yeah. I, I'm also reminded yeah. of uh, Dan Gilbert's fairly pessimistic appraisal of what having a family does to one's well-being. I mean, I, I, you know, if, if, if memory serves, the painfully deflected line of well-being uh, does eventually recover, but it doesn't recover until you're an empty nester. Uh, and I've never known how seriously to take those data of um, just the reliable diminishment in happiness and well-being if, um, you know, once you have kids. It seems startling to consider that, given how valuable uh, and re- rewarding it seems to have kids. But of course, I can't run the ca- counterfactual and know who I would be at this point if I did not have two wonderful that's, daughters. So, yeah, t- yeah, tell me, yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, so first of all, Dan Gilbert's data is robust, particularly if, he, if you're looking at a curve of marital satisfaction. Right. But that's particular. That's not general happiness. Marital satisfaction is highest when we first get together with our partner, goes down when the first child is born, goes up again when the last child leaves home. And in some studies, it only goes down again if children come back to live at home after they're launched. (laughs) But that's different because that's about satisfaction in the relationship. Right. And we know that when you have kids, you and your partner are likely to become more of a tag team than you are that couple who had wonderful romantic evenings together, right? It's just, there's just so much stuff to do in co-parenting, which means that the marriage on average gets less attention. So, so marital satisfaction has a very robust U-curve, up, then down, then up again. But, and, and that's not every marriage. This is on average looking at thousands of marriages. But back to your question about, well, what, what's most auspicious for a life? And there, one size does not fit all. So temperamentally, we're all on a continuum from being shy, introverted, to being extroverted. So that person you you pictured for us of, you know, having lots of friends and lots of family and throwing parties, okay? Now, if that person's an extrovert, that's great. That's what that person needs. If that person is an introvert and finds themselves in that situation, they're going to be stressed to the max. That won't be good for them. So what we really want is to to take a reading, an internal reading on what amount of social connection works for me in my life. You know, that, that there are introverts who really get a lot of refueling from alone time. Now they need people, but they might need only one or two people, close people in their lives. Mm. Is there, and is then there, there are any, people? Uh, yeah. There's one question here. Is there, is there? I know Susan Cain will hate this question, but is there any normative difference between introversion and extroversion with respect to fulfillment? I mean, are, are are fulfilled introverts just as fulfilled as fulfilled extroverts, or is it actually better to be more of an extrovert? 
I can't tell you that because I haven't done that research. I think what Susan Cain's book suggests, and I'm not sure what her data is, is that 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 no, there's no there's no advantage yeah. to being an extrovert. That these are temperamental qualities, and that what you want is a match of your environment to your internal temperament and your needs. Mm. And so, what I would say to to our listeners is take a reading over and over again because it may change at different points in your life. But you know, what amount of social connection makes you feel energized, makes you feel positive, and what amount of social connection is draining and exhausting? And try to try to steer toward that balance that works for mm. you. And it's going to be different for everybody. It may be different for your spouse than it is for you. Maybe different for your siblings, right? So, given that it's not one size fits all, what is the bare minimum, right? Because you're because you're saying that some social connection is integral to having a good life. Again, we can leave aside the the happy hermit in a cave, right? Who um, may in fact also be living a his or her best life, but. Most of us are not that person. So what? What? Um, what is the, you know? So back to our twenty-year-old. You know, the twenty-year-old is introverted or extroverted to whatever degree. They have, you know, the the world is their oyster. They can decide to to um, design their life however they want. Let's say you can't give them generic advice as to how many kids they should have, or whether even they should have kids, uh, or how many friends they should have, or how many parties they should throw. But what is what? What's clearly the wrong path, right? I mean, the, the and which is analogous yeah, to yeah. smoking. I mean, you, you can okay. you can generically say that they shouldn't take up the habit of smoking cigarettes. What can you yeah. say with respect to relationships? That you shouldn't be without anybody, right? That there there should be somebody. So we we asked our original subjects. We said, who could you call in the middle of the night if you were sick or scared? Hmm. List all those people. And some people list, listed quite a few people. Some people couldn't list anyone, including there were people who were married who couldn't list anyone. And so I think the, the path you don't want to take, even if you're quite introverted, is having nobody in your life, having mm -hmm. no one there who you feel would have your back if you really needed help. That all of us need something in that department to feel okay about our lives but but are there people so just to make sure i understand this so, so there are, are there people who scored at the top of your well-being inventory who only had one person of value in their life Ooh, i'd have to go back and look at that <laughs> to be mm -hmm. honest you know in terms of correlating the number of people they could yeah. list with their various happiness measures through the years so i, I can't tell you but I can tell you that having few people was totally consistent with mm -hmm. being happy with well-being. Right, right. Yeah. So, but what about to take the the other side of this, which is um, the inevitability of mortality and and loss? Right. So there's the bereavement that comes with losing people close to us, and your study must be tracking that a fair amount. Uh, and if you have few people. Well then, you know, if you if you only have one person and that person dies, then you've gone from one to zero. What are your thoughts on on mortality and loss in light of 
what we've been talking about? Well, loss is is there for all of us, right? It's coming. Like if you love somebody, you're going to lose that person eventually, one way or another. Mm -hmm. So that is out there waiting for us, much as we often want to turn away from that truth. And so I think what we want to do is is find ways to, to broaden the net if we can, but if not, then to make new relationships as we lose old ones. Easier said than done, of course. But people do it. And people in our study did it. I mean, people in our study found new love in their 70s and 80s, you know, so that, so that it is possible. And loss was very real. We, everybody in our study dealt with loss at different points in their lives. Yeah, I, I can just imagine different advantages here. So, you know, I, I, there are people who may have, you know, fantastic marriages but they're both introverts and they're both, you know, they're kind of a dyad for decades. And then when one spouse dies, the other is left without the, the one person in their life who really was the, almost the totality of their social ballast. You know, they're not really set up well to go out and find another person at that point. And they're, you know, they, again, they may be introverts. And so they're not really set up just temperamentally well to do that at any point in their lives. So that that seems like a less lucky situation than someone who might also have been happily married but they weren't quite so introverted and they and they you know they were very social as a couple say so they have a, a wide circle of friends you know for that this person now having lost their their uh, spouse it was is is going to be able to fall back on in their bereavement. I mean so I guess that's you know one Possible difference that comes to mind, which would be, you know, just just for argument's sake, we could we could imagine that these two couples have kind of identical levels of fulfillment while while everyone's still alive, right? So I'm just thinking kind of like in end of life mm. strategies, mm. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and 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 often the the stereotype, probably because it's so so often true, is that men don't have social networks beyond mm. their their spouse and and the social network that the spouse creates and that women are more likely to have networks of friends. Right. And so it becomes a challenge, but it becomes a challenge for everybody when your primary partner is no longer there. You know, it's re- it's a real challenge to to keep a relational life going, to rebuild a social life. So it's always it's always a challenge and I think, you know, I mean You'll see actually one of the most touching parts of the book is the very beginning where they're asking this couple in their 80s, what's your greatest fear? And his greatest fear is, I'm afraid that you'll die first and I'll be left here alone without you. Mm. So do you have different advice for each decade of life? I mean, if if someone in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s is going to ask you on the basis of your research, what should I be thinking about for this chapter of life? Do you have you know, kind of clear landmarks that you would want people to be aware of? Or how, how do you think about the development part of adult development? I'd say that there are, there's more universal advice I would give rather than specific to mm-hmm. life stage. Because what we find is that at each, at each life stage, 
tending to relationships, tending to your social life really has huge benefits and maybe different benefits at different life stages, but huge payoff. So that if you were going to invest, you know, time and energy, where should you put it? It would be in those connections. And that's important because there are a lot of competing interests, right? When you're a young adult, you're, you know, you're trying to make it in a career. There are other things going on that you need to attend to, and certainly in midlife and, and in later life, but that tending to relationships has payoffs at every age. And I think that's far more important mm. than, and, than the nuances of stage-specific advice. What about the periods in life that one makes friends? I, mean, I think it's a fairly common experience to make some very good friends early in life and to keep them and, and not really to have all that much bandwidth for new best friends. It's not that one doesn't acquire new friends uh, later in life, but you know, you, you can really, you, if, if you have a a few really good friends in, in high school and they stay your friends and you maybe get a few more in college and they stay your friends. Well, then in your 20s and 30s and beyond, you've got these old friends who, who really are your core group. And if memory serves, no one, no, no one ever told me that, you know, hey, listen, you, you got to realize that there's a, there's a period in life where it's, it's easiest to make good friends and maintain these relationships. And if you don't do it now, you're going to find that it's probably harder to do later in life, especially once everyone's starting to have families or most people are starting to have families and, and careers and everyone's busy and, already, and everyone already has their old good friends. So be attentive to who your, your close circle of friends is as you're you know, getting into your teenage years and your 20s and is there any wisdom to be extracted from, from that or any, any yeah. general advice? Yeah. One, so you're pointing to two actually common myths. One is, well, I've got these friends and they're always going to be my friends. So that turns out not to be true. That perfectly good close relationships from you know elementary school, high school, college, that perfectly good relationships wither away from neglect. Mm -hmm. So they require maintenance. And I think a lot of us, I was one of those people uh, as a young adult, thought, oh, I don't really have to do much. They're going to always be my friends. That turns out not to be a good thing to take for granted, yeah. that they need care. They need tending to. The other myth, I think, is that it's too hard to make friends later in life. You just don't do that. We have life stories in the book of people who thought, you know, I'm never going to have good relationships, not good at this. And they found tribes late in life when they least expected it. They found love late in life when they didn't expect it. So, you know, the idea that there comes a point where the window has closed is not our experience in studying these thousands of lives. Mm. What about this? Um, this comes back to the, uh, the wealth discussion, or I guess the question of what wealth is good for. The distinction one often hears between things and experiences, right? So to, to be mm -hmm. seeking you know, novel experiences or rewarding experiences versus seeking you know, to acquire objects or you know, houses or whatever, you know, something that is static that is usually the sign of 
success in in the domain of wealth. The, the lesson widely drawn here is that we should be seeking experiences over things. Does that hold up? It does hold up. Uh, certainly in some of the research it holds up. And, and the question that a researcher asks is, well, why? And that turns out to be not hard to answer, that things just beg for comparison. So, you know, I buy a big screen TV and I'm all excited and I bring it home. And then I go to my neighbors and realize that, you know, he's got a bigger screen TV, you know, and that, that, the, that material things, first of all, become just objects we get used to like my TV, it's just the thing I watch from time to time. But also it begs for comparison with other people's material things. Mm -hmm. Experiences are different in that our experiences aren't as comparable. So if you and I both take you know, a trip to Alaska, they're never gonna be quite the same because we're gonna be with different people. We're gonna have different experiences along the way. And that, that there's a unique, cast, there's a unique flavor to my experience of a particular trip. And so it doesn't pull for comparison with your experience. Similarly, experiences are often done in ways that bring us closer to other people, either people we already know, like family that we go on vacation with or go to a basketball game with, or new people who we meet. And so it is a way to bring more social connection into your life. So both of those mechanisms seem to be why experiences make us happier and they keep us happier for longer than buying that next yacht. Yeah, well, also there's back to the remembering self. You have you know, far more um, dynamic, you know, variegated memories and stories to tell about the experiences you've had, you, you don't really have much to say about the object, you know, whether it's a car or a piece of jewelry or whatever it is this sh that you are just associated with day to day, right? It's not, right. It's not quite the same. And, and you don't have movie, the inner, inner movie, yeah. Right. You can go back and remember fun times. You can remember it al them alone. You can remember them with the people you took the trip with or whatever. Yeah. You know, so there are lots of ways that, you could, that, that experiences can be the gift that keeps on giving. So is there anything that you have changed about your life in response to this research? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a Harvard professor. I could work nonstop all the time. And what I realized was that if I did that, my relationships would wither away and die. And I've spent much more conscious time, particularly since my kids have left home mm. and I don't have those people dragging me off to do things, that I've spent much more time paying attention to, you know, I haven't seen my friend in a while. I'm going to see if he wants to go for a walk. Uh, I'm going to ask this person for a cup of coffee, whatever. You know, I do that more. I'm more active in reaching out mm -hmm. than I used to be. Yeah. I, I find going for a walk is a, uh, is there any, data on walking or did that just get binned in with, with uh, whether a person exercises? Well, it's, there is good data on walking, particularly because it's low cost and you don't have to be as physically abled to mm. walk as you do to do some other more vigorous things. And the good data shows that it keeps us not just physically healthier, but keeps our brains sharper. 
and walking is a great thing to do. And also, one of the things we know is that walking is really often con- conducive to conversation. Mm-hmm. That when we're sitting face to face, it can sometimes be awkward or tense. And sometimes when we're both just kind of walking and looking at the world in tandem, uh, it can be easier to really get into things. Yeah. So a lot of benefits yeah. to walks. Uh, what about pets? Do, do pets function as a surrogate for a social relationship? Or is, uh, do you have data on pet ownership from the study? We don't have data. No. I mean, we, we would have some anecdotal data, but we, we don't have good, rigorous empirical data. There are data, though, about this. There are studies that suggest that, that pets really can be quite powerful sources of connection. You know, if you think about it, think about a dog. I mean, a dog is often just pure emotion, pure affect. And often it's like a lot of love, right? If it's a certain kind of dog. And that goes a long way to doing that kind of emotion regulating that I was talking about a little while ago, Uh, helping you calm down, uh, helping you feel appreciated. You know, it's wonderful to have a dog wagging their tail when you come home. It's great. Yeah, yeah. Why is it hard to live wisely in light of this or any other information? I mean, it seems to me that we're kind of faced with a, it's not really a paradox, but it is a less than optimal and, and seemingly self-contradictory set of um Responses to life, which is that we're you know there's there's no one who's in a better position to determine the quality of life of your future self than your present self is, and yet people often find that it's it's very hard to effectively care about their future selves i mean it's like that there's you know hyperbolic discounting of of concern for the future and uh, the any prospect of future reward. And there's just this tug of war between, you know, the near-term desire to gratify one's, one's appetites and one's knowing that one would rather not have eaten that extra slice of cake tomorrow when one wakes up once again feeling fat, right? So there's just the, you know, there's the, the one who wants the cake <laughs> yeah. now and the one who will regret the cake in a few short hours. So it's, how is it that we can become more aligned here and take our own advice more and more and with less friction? I mean, how do you view this problem of living wisely, given that we have a pretty good sense of what a good life looks like in the end? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A lot comes back to paying attention. So paying attention to the difference between the stories we tell ourselves and the fact of our experience, between the stories that we're told. So think of all the messages we get all day long from the culture about buying something will make us happy. You know, these various, you know, the, the glorification of fame, the glorification of badges of achievement. And so paying attention to the difference between those stories and what we know of our experience is hard to do, but it's doable. How much has it really been great to get an award? Like it lasts for 20 minutes and then it's kind of gone. You know, how, how much 
has wealth really mattered to me in the long run as I look at times when I've had more wealth or, you know, that there, there are ways we can pay attention to what actually is nourishing in our experience. And I would argue that a lot of that, a lot of what's nourishing for many of us is around human connection, as opposed to wealth or badges of achievement or being famous, that those are kind of cold, temporary comfort. But it requires paying attention because the culture keeps giving us these messages of, no, 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 it'll, you will really be sexier if you buy this car, right? You will always look young if you use this face cream. And so we, we are told stories that are, that are not the truth, but they are, they are useful fictions because they get us to buy things. They, they hold our attention. Yeah, it's set up strangely in that if you look at the just this point you're making about the primacy of one's social relationships, those are the very relationships that one can be lulled into taking for granted. Right, it's like they're always going to be there. It almost in the act of acknowledging their primacy, one is led to overlook the need to maintain anything in that space. Right, it's like you're, you, you, you almost by definition, these are the relationships that almost by definition you can take for granted. These are your primary, most durable sources of almost unconditional love. Right, I mean, it's the it's the unconditional part of that which which makes you think, well, there, there's really, it's always going to be there. But, you know, you know death aside, it's everything is suffering from some possible entropy there, which is, you know, if you're, if you keep taking your marriage for granted, you, you will, you know, the, the years pass between times where you have fully reconnected. And um, yeah, so it's, there's a kind of a, you know, a hallucinatory quality to this, where it's just the very thing that is most important is the thing you seem most likely to overlook on a daily basis. Exactly. Exactly. I, I think that's why that TED talk I gave, I gave that TED talk at, a, at an elementary school auditorium in Brookline, mm. Massachusetts at a TEDx event. And it went completely viral, right? I think that's why. I think because of just what you said, that people know deep down that these relationships are so important, that they're kind of the core of life. Mm. And yet they, we watch ourselves be distracted from them all day long. Yeah. And that I think, you know, what the TED Talk did was just put it front and center and said, hey. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember if this came up in your talk, but this seems related somehow. I mean, there's this, this notion of quality time versus just quantity of time. but there is a, I think in, in most formulations, it's a false dichotomy. And really, you, you do need quantity of time in order to get quality of time. It's not like you can just have a targeted uh, hyper quality 15 minutes to you know, re resurrect your relationship with your children each day. You actually just need to be spending you know, more time of, of whatever quality so that you can reliably get quality time. Right, right. There is that. You know, there was this myth that if, as long as it's quality, it doesn't matter how much or how little mm. time you spend. But the other thing is that we are now 
in a place where we spend poor quality time with each other. I think her name is Linda Stone, who writes about what she calls continuous partial attention that Mm -hmm. we give each other, where we're often on a screen and talking to someone else. Yeah. And that that this partial attention is one of the great detractors from the power of connection. And so it really also involves being much more aware. Am I giving this person my full attention? So actually, John Tarrant, my my Dharma Mm -hmm. (laughs) great-grandfather, my teacher's teacher's teacher, said, attention is the most basic form of love. And I think that's a profound statement, that actually our full undivided attention is probably the greatest gift we have to give each other. And now it's increasingly rare that we do that. Yeah, that's a distinction I've often made. We talk about time as our scarcest non-renewable resource, but it really is the, the attention in the midst of time, because we, we all know what it's like to guard our time and then to squander it. And, and you've just pointed out one of the ways we do that with other people, which raises the question, what is our technology doing to us? How, how do you think about technology at this point and the ways in which it helps or hurts the project of, of living the most fulfilling life on offer? Sure. Well, there's a lot more to be learned. So there is considerable research, as you know, going on about this. But the research that's out so far seems to suggest that it's how we use technology. It's how we use social media, for example, that matters to our well-being. So being actively engaged to connect with other people through social media is often energizing and contributes to well-being. And that being passively engaged, where we simply watch someone else's Instagram feed, right, or TikTok videos, Mm. that that often makes us feel worse and lowers self-esteem. And that actually teenage girls are particularly vulnerable to this, but we're all vulnerable to watching other people's curated lives play out in front of us on social media, that that is a recipe for lowered mood, lower self-esteem. And so it seems like the data are beginning to show that active engagement that furthers connection is a positive, but that passive engagement that fuels comparison is a a strong negative. Yeah. Okay, well, let's bring back the the more esoteric piece here of your bio, the, the Zen priest component. First, I neglected to ask this when I was talking about your, your origin story here. What, were psychedelics ever part of your path? Did you miss that part of the, the 60s? Uh, or... I missed that part of the 60s. <laughs> I did. And you're, are, you, are, you, are you also missing that part of the uh, 2020s now that, now that psychedelic research has undergone a renaissance? You know, I am. Some of my colleagues are really into it, mm-hmm. uh, both studying it and personally experimenting with it. Uh, I haven't been doing that because, you know, I've spent some of my career treating people who used not just psychedelics, but other, you know, other drugs, recreational drugs, and never came back from it. Now, mm-hmm. those are rare instances, 
But, you know, when they come into my office, it's a cautionary tale. So I think I'm probably more cautious than many people are about this because I've seen people who've had really bad experiences. That said, I've heard powerful stories about the benefits and there's some positive research going on. So I don't know, but it's it's certainly passing me by personally. Mm -hmm. So... What is your when you when you throw the the Zen lens over what we've been talking about? How does the the freedom and the the insight advertised in you know not, you know, not just Zen in particular, but you know our, our contemplative traditions in general? How does that integrate here? Because there, it, it does it, conceptually there there are apparent paradoxes, or at least. Things that are confusing for people. Let me just say this: the prospect that the self, as most people conceive of it, is either an illusion or, at best, a a construct, which is not as not what it seems, and that freedom, you know, a, a truly normative degree of psychological freedom, exists on the other side of that epiphany. How do you think about that, and how, and how do you talk to secular people who may not be that interested in such esoterica about that? Well, first of all, I, you know, there is, there is this whole thing about enlightenment, right? About epiphanies, like great openings where suddenly it all becomes clear. And my experience and talking to a lot of people is that those experiences uh, happen, they really happen, that they're temporary, and that most of our lives are not spent there. And that enlightenment is not a state you get to and then you're there, but enlightenment comes in moments and we move in and out of enlightenment. And that enlightenment has a lot to do with understanding the relative nature of the self, the self that we hold a little more lightly, a little less rigidly. Not that the self doesn't exist, but that the self is completely dependent on other people and interconnected with other people. And that recognizing that, the Mm. interconnection, and recognizing the moment-to-moment nature of our experience is the freedom. It's not some place you arrive to and then you've achieved it and that's it. It's a moment-to-moment practice where you have glimpses of freedom and glimpses of holding on less rigidly to what we think we're so sure of. You know, we, we, we talk a lot in Zen about not knowing in a good way. Suzuki Roshi was famous for saying that in the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. Beginner's mind meaning like realizing how much you don't know and coming at everything with a fresh mind. And he said, and in the expert's mind, there are few possibilities. So this certainty of knowing is really an obstacle to mm. the freedom that we're talking about, to hold ourselves in the world more lightly. So when you say the self is bound up with other people, can you say more about that? I mean, I, I'm hearing you essentially describe what I have come to think of as states of self, that there's really not a single self, that there's, there's these various self-states that we can experience in collaboration with other people. You have a, there's the way you feel as a parent, there's the way you feel as a child, there's the way you feel as a 
spouse, there's a way you feel as a professor, there's a way you feel as a customer in a store, there's just all these different roles you can find yourself in, some fairly transitory, and they can be surprisingly discordant and mm-hmm. things like you know status and expectations and I mean just there's a, there's a lot that there's kind of an unseen structure to many of these relationships that really determine or it can seem to determine their quality in, in, in impressive ways but uh yeah what it, how how do you think of first of all that we use this term self in in many different ways and you know, I, I think there's only one sense in which I would want to say the, the self is an illusion, and that's not, you know, and I do think that self is an illusion, but there are many other ways we talk about self, which is, which is not a, a naming of yet another illusion. I mean, I don't think, we, we wouldn't want to say that people are illusions or that you're, that it's somehow mysterious that, you know, you wake up with your memories and not my memories, right? So your, your psychological continuity over time is not, is not nothing, right? It's it's a mm-hmm. it's a mm-hmm. it's a phenomenon that you know we have to conserve that somehow in our description of of what it is to be a person. I guess that the the sense of self that I often describe as an illusion is just the sense that there's a subject, an unchanging subject in the middle of experience that is the point of view from which experience is being a, uh, appropriated or known. You know, there's a there's a thinker in addition to the flow of thoughts. There's an experiencer in addition to experience. There's a little man in the boat, essentially, who's riding around, you know, on the on the stream of consciousness, who's not part of the stream. Meditation can reveal that that is a false point of view, and when you relinquish that point of view, then you're you, ha- you experience a, a freedom from clinging to that sort of reified self. And there's much there's a there's a great relief that can come there, but there there are other ways in which we could we could assert that the self exists, and there are various forms of self that can be destabilized in ways that are that are obviously not normative, right? You know, you can you can have, I mean, this is this is your area, not mine, but I'm sure there there are many clinical conditions which are described as a you know, in, in some form as a, you know, incompletely constructed self or the erosion of self boundaries, or, you know, I'm thinking of things like, you know, borderline personality disorder or something where it's just, there's a non-normative structure to what's, what's there. And, you know, even some of the destabilizing experiences people have on psychedelics can be described as a, as a breakdown in the normal structure of of the self, and you know that is in the, in those cases, you know, not the ushering in the the beatific vision. It's ushering in something quite a bit more harrowing, and and in some cases of clinical significance. It's not that all erosions of self are are desirable, but um, right. there is this illusion that there's the division between subject and object that is. Kind of permanent and true, and cognitively necessary, and you know, in my experience, meditation reveals that that's just that is in fact a fiction, and there really is a when you punch through to what can be noticed in the present moment, there there is just this unity of of experience, which um, 
I mean, I'm, I'm actually, unity is not is a word I don't often use because that also just seems to reify it. I'm, I actually prefer the the Buddhist framing of of emptiness or selflessness or non duality. But it's that is one thing I think that can be discovered and essentially conquered as a you know like a territory that then doesn't get lost again. I mean, it gets lost when you get distracted by thought, but it is the kind of thing that once you know how to recognize it, one's practice at that point just becomes getting more more and more familiar with it, and it's not something that has to be laboriously discovered again, right? It just becomes more and more obvious as just the way consciousness is in each ordinary moment. Well, it's, it's a recognition that we can keep touching back to. Yeah. But when we are all caught up in strong emotion, in intense stories about life, yeah. we really lose that awareness, yeah. right? And so we move in and out of being in touch with that awareness that you're describing. And that I think is the truth. You know, that, that I mean, I see, you know, you see all these Zen groups, all these meditation groups, the communities that go to war with each other, mm-hmm. that have terrible feuds. You see uh, meditation teachers committing heinous violations with students. So moving in and out of an awareness of our interconnectedness and the core principle of, you know, the truth of no fixed self. And, and it's not as though good meditators and very evolved meditation teachers are necessarily better at functioning in the world. It's just not the truth of life. So as much as these insights are there to be had and to be helpful, to be touched back to, we also lose them and then we can regain them. That's, what, that's why I, I sort of make that statement about enlightenment being something that comes and goes. Hmm. Well, how do you think about these, let's take the most extreme case, you know, the case of teachers who obviously have had real awakenings themselves. I mean, they're not all frauds. I mean, I'm sure there are, no, there are no. teachers who are, who are in fact frauds, but that's, those are the easier cases. You take teachers who really have had true awakenings and are in fact, you know, some version of a, a high-level spiritual athlete. I mean, they, they are great meditators, and they may, they're, they're even great teachers of meditation, and they can, they can precipitate these awakening experiences in their students. But as you say, many of them have behaved deplorably in their roles as gurus. Mm-hmm. How do you think about that? What, what explains that from your point of view? And is the guru-disciple principle broken or anachronistic in the secular West? I mean, how, what, what's, what, uh, what norms should we have around this? And uh, how do you think about the dangers of this terrain for people? Well, well, my understanding is it happened, it's happened everywhere, that it's not just in the West, yeah. that many of the structures that were there in the East in more traditional communities may have been more protective. For example, there were only same-sex monasteries, right, which made some difference in this, and that, that some of the earliest teachers who came from China and Japan and other parts of Asia to the U.S. and had these adoring uh, students who they were sexually attracted to didn't know what to do with it. But 
I think that really it's not that it's that the guru position is a a story and it's a false position. There really is no I mean there are wiser people who've been on the path longer, yes, to be sure. Are they fallible? Yes. Is there anybody who's not fallible? No. <laughs> and the danger is when we invest anybody with infallibility. That's just not the truth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so then how do you think about the prospect of what's often thought of as not just awakening, but uh, full enlightenment? Do you, do you actually think that it's not psychologically realistic to think of a some final stage where so many of your moments of wisdom and non-clinging are linked together that there really is no no residue of ordinary confusion left. There's just this continuity of, of insight into this thing that you have been describing as more transitory in, in the normal case. Yeah. I think that it's a wonderful fantasy that the the moments of wisdom are now so seamlessly connected that there's no room for anything else but wisdom and ethical behavior. I think it's a wonderful fantasy and it's a dangerous fantasy. Mm. I don't think there's anybody like that in the world. And that but but we wish for that. We are so longing for that. That's part of our human condition that we want somebody please to have arrived, right? To have figured it all out. But isn't that the explicit promise of the teaching? So that, and, and the, just the implication of making any progress at all? I mean, just so the fact. No. You, you can, no. You can see that it, you've made some progress. Like if you've, you used to be someone who didn't know anything about this, and then you looked into yeah. it and you had yeah. certain insights. And then let's say you, you've practiced diligently and you went from being someone who was lost 99.9% of the time to someone who's lost only 89.9% of the time, uh, and you've made progress from there, doesn't that just suggest a continuum of possible progress where you're no longer going to be the, the poor schmuck who's still vacillating and <laughs> you know, falling, falling asleep in, into the dream life of egocentricity? You're just, you, you've actually broken the spell, and you're not going to be taken in by those last illusions? Have you ever met anybody like that? Well, I don't know, actually. I mean, I've met people who didn't deny being like that. I've actually met people who've claimed to be like that. And Yeah, okay. And I've met people who were, were for reasons of probably cultural taboos, you know, didn't, didn't make the claim, but were certainly treated by you know, everyone around as though they were like that. Oh, yes. Oh yes, and I've, yeah, and then I've met people who you know I, who <laughs> I've met every variant of this. I've met the people who claim to be like that and who obviously weren't, and I've met the people who seemed to make a compelling case in in the sense that you know they they they, they certainly seemed as free as I could hope a person could be. But yeah, I mean one one part of the problem here is that I think much of what we consider to be a necessary component of a good life, you know, at this moment in history, you know, which is to say a, an, an ethical life, a responsible life, a, an informed life, much of this is orthogonal to the project of overcoming the illusion of the self, say, as we've been talking about it now. It's like if you, if you, if you were stable in your insight into non-duality, 
in my view, that wouldn't confer any specific knowledge about anything that you might want to have knowledge of. It's not going to teach you about quantum mechanics. It's not going to teach you about modern psychology. It's, It's certainly not going to give you any specific cultural norms, you know, with respect to, you know, how you, you know, how you dress, how you eat, how you treat people in various stations of life. Right. You know, so even if you were kind of, even if you had transcended yourself, you get this, you know, narrow subject without residue and felt tremendous compassion, you know, rather effortlessly for, for everyone, you might have political beliefs or, you know, or cultural beliefs that are, you know, so anachronistic and weird in the current environment that you might, you know, just seem like a, yes. you know, a, a, yes. a bigot and, yes. and might, might, might even be a bigot by some measure, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, you don't like people with red hair because your culture tells you that, you know, red-haired people are are demonic, right? And you know, you just right. ha- haven't learned anything that would be a counterpoint to that belief. So, I mean, I so, so I've been in the presence yeah. of of great meditators who might have thought the the earth was flat. I have no idea. I mean, I've met yeah. people who have yeah. spent 20 years in a cave. But so if all of those things are orthogonal to this specific project, that's just to say that there there's more that one wants to get in hand to live the, you know, a truly good, fulfilling, well-integrated life in the year 2023, you know, certainly yes. in our society. But it's worth naming, Sam, that this fantasy, that there is somebody who finally arrives, who has it all figured out, who's mm. fully evolved, that that is a dangerous fantasy. There was in ancient China, Lin Ji, who was a Zen master, is famous for saying, if you meet the Buddha on the road, mm-hmm. kill him. Yeah. It's really just kill your fantasy yeah. of the fully evolved, never to return to the human condition being, right? right? Just kill that fantasy. He's not saying literally kill the person you see on the road. He's yeah. saying, saying, kill that fantasy. Another way he phrased it was, do not put another head on top of your own. Mm, that yeah. this, is, this is all we got. You know, Sam is all you've got. Bob is all I've got. And that we can evolve, right? And we can get better. You know, I, I am different than I was before I started meditating. But fully evolved, that's not going to ever happen for me. But, it, but isn't that just a... It somehow seems... Either too pessimistic or too 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 complacent. I, I guess I, I can't imagine people convict you of pessimism too often. But there's a they don't. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a there's a complacency that can creep in there because it's it, it's letting yourself off the hook too soon. Perhaps it's like you're, you're, you're no, I, yeah yeah. Okay, let me can I can I say no no? It's the opposite. It's never letting yourself off the hook. Right, mm. because the problem with somebody who thinks they're fully evolved is that then they're they don't have to worry. They they're infallible. They don't have to keep examining yeah. their behavior. They don't have to to keep worrying about whether they are living according to their own ethical principles. And so I'm saying that's the the danger is in letting yourself off the hook, or in our letting any other person off the hook. That's what I'm that's what I'm trying to name here. Well, so so strangely, you're actually in order to do that, you know, to be ever vigilant and ever, 
you know, skeptical of your own, you know, final perfection, it's really only by comparison with possible perfection that you would you would maintain that vigilance, right? It's like a, like there's a sense that you're not actually giving up the ideal. You're basically just saying that it's you know statistically so unlikely to be attained in your case or anyone else's case that by comparison with with that, we should always be examining our feet for signs of clay. Absolutely. And so, for example, you know, there are people who idealize me as their Zen teacher, Mm. and I am constantly working to show them that story and certainly trying not to believe my own press, right? Right. Because it's really important. I feel like it's a really important way to be in the world. Yeah, I fully agree there. Well, Bob, it's uh, it's great to meet you by uh, distant uh, and alienating technology here. But, yeah. uh, I'm, and this I'm, was such an interesting conversation. Yeah, Good Lord. Yeah. Not well, what I expected. You were the man to have it. So before I let you go, tell people where they can find more about you and your work and I, I when we release this, we will remind them about uh, the new book, The Good Life. But um, give us any uh, yeah. touch points you want people to have. Oh, sure. Well, there's a there's a website, thegoodlifebook.com. There is a, stu- a study website. It's www.adultdevelopmentstudy.org. Mm-hmm. Adult Development Study, all one word, dot .org. And my Zen group is newtonzen.org. That's great. Well, Bob, best of luck with the book launch. And um, I hope our paths cross out in the real world one of these days. I hope they do too, Sam. This was really a pleasure, a really stimulating conversation. Thank you.